Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today is my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Chris Irwin, who is also an accredited dietitian and has done a bit of work in sports nutrition as well. He is the Senior Lecturer in Nutrition and Dietetics at the School of Allied Health Sciences and Social Work at Griffith University in Australia. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Hi, Liz. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, well, thank you for giving us some of your precious time to talk about alcohol. So that's the, the topic that we've chosen today. It's an area of passion of yours, uh, not just the drinking, but the researching as well. And so, can you tell us a little bit first about yourself and your background? Yeah, I'm happy to. And it is one of my absolute favourite topics to talk about alcohol and right from both the drinking and, and research perspective. <laughs> uh, I teach a food science course and uh, I always tell my students when I'm doing uh, lectures that this is my favourite topic to talk about. So, <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> so yeah, a little bit of background about me. Obviously, uh, as you mentioned in the intro there, I'm, I'm a accredited practising dietitian, but I didn't start out wanting to be a dietitian. I actually wanted to be an engineer when I was uh, finishing high school and for some strange reason, I started doing engineering and then found my way out of that and into teaching at high school. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. It took, yeah, it took me a little while to actually get to the point where I found nutrition. And uh, once I did, I fell in love with the, the content and, and just really wanted to, I guess, embed myself in nutrition and, and nutrition research in particular. So mm -hmm. I did a Master's of Nutrition and Dietetics um, here at Griffith University. And as part of that, I did a research component under mm -hmm. what you would have had on your podcast previously. Um, so Professor Ben Desbro, he was my honours research supervisor. And I did some work in caffeine at that point mm -hmm. in time. But that was when I was like, I have to do research and have to do more of it. So I uh, decided to do my PhD immediately after that. And Ben was my supervisor as well. And it happened to be, I shifted away from caffeine into alcohol. And uh, my research was all centered around trying to understand the interaction between hydration and dehydration and alcohol consumption. Mm -hmm. And then since that, I've just stuck around at Griffith. They've, they've kept me on. So, <laughs> so I have a, a great job that I really love doing, which is, involves teaching around, around sort of nutrition concepts but also doing research and alcohol seems to be one of the one of the areas that I'm really interested in. <laughs> and you've been there, I remember you did your honours thesis in 2007, am I thinking 2000, right? 2008, I think it was. <laughs> 2008, okay, well, I was close. Yep, so you've been there for a while. A little while, yeah. It just some, Sometimes you become institutionalised, I think. You just sort of, <laughs> you stick around long enough and they give you a job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you must also be doing some good work at the same time. So, can, <laughs> so our topic today, alcohol, a lot of people avoid talking about alcohol with athletes. Why do you think that's the case, that people avoid that topic? Yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting question. I mean, alcohol is somewhat synonymous with sport in general. Mm. I think, you know, from what we know about alcohol and its effects, there's very rarely positive things that are said about you know, alcohol and its effects. Uh, and so in a sporting context, when we're talking about athletes, we're trying to avoid you know, things that are likely to cause impairment. 
So uh, it's it's often something that's you know pushed to the side. There's so many other things to focus on when we're thinking about how we can optimize an athlete's performance and recovery. And alcohol mm-hmm. is one of those things we try and avoid. Mm. Yeah, but it it needs to be spoken about because there is a lot of reports, certainly in the Australian literature, of poor behavior and poor poor choices being made by high-profile athletes under the influence of alcohol, correct? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this is, I guess, one of the interesting things about alcohol is that it has somewhat sort of been ingrained in our culture and it's, as I said before, very synonymous with sport uh, and we see high-profile athletes, not just weekend warriors, but, you know, elite athletes consuming alcohol might be immediately after sort of games or matches or, or events and that's often because alcohol companies often sponsors with with a lot of the sort of sports. Mm. So uh, yeah, they're handed they're handed a beverage after after a game or a mm. match. Yeah, yeah, I remember many years ago, one of my early jobs uh, with a, a rugby union team, and the, I had to walk through the change rooms at the end. I had to try and give them a milk-based recovery drink before they actually got to their beer. Like I'm like, can you just drink this before your beer? Like just put it in a different order. <laughs> and what? Oh, yeah. So tell us a bit about what alcohol is. Like what are we specifically talking about and what does it do? What does it do to the body? Sure. So I guess when we're thinking about alcohol, what we usually mean is alcohol that's in alcoholic beverages. So in beer, wine and spirits, it's the ingredient in those drinks that really gives us the the effects that we're we're well known um, Mm. and makes us feel drunk. I guess from a chemistry standpoint, alcohol in drinks is called ethanol or sometimes referred to as ethyl alcohol. And basically, Ethanol is formed when yeast ferments carbohydrate and sugars in different types of products like grains and fruits and vegetables. So as as an example, beer is made from fermenting cereal grains like barley or Mm -hmm. oats. Wine's made from the sugar in grapes and vodka is made from potatoes, the starch in potatoes. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's, that's it from a chemistry standpoint. I guess from a more sort of broad sense, alcohol to me and what I tend to, I guess, educate my students about is that alcohol is actually a drug and we need to think of it as such. It just happens mm-hmm. to be a legal one and it's commonly consumed and it's part of, I guess, many social cultures in many parts of the world. And I think, you know, I often say again to my students that I have no doubt that if it wasn't made from natural products and it wasn't presented in a beverage form, if ethanol was in the form of a pill or a powder, given the effects that it has, it would be an illegal substance. Um, mm. But uh, it, it just isn't that case. They tried to tried to make that the case many, many years ago, but uh, obviously teetotaling didn't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just went underground, didn't it, the, the prohibition years? It did, it did, yeah. But I guess like other drugs, alcohol affects how our body works. It can be toxic and it can be addictive. And we've got a pretty good understanding of what happens when we drink alcohol from a 
I guess, a general standpoint in terms of health and impairment. And, and that's largely driven by lots of epidemiological and observational research in public health that's been done. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so from an athlete's perspective, what are the aspects of the way alcohol affects the body that we're probably most concerned about, do you think? Yeah, I think you know, when we think about exercise and and I guess post-exercise recovery. Most most people when they're drinking alcohol are not going to be doing so immediately before they go and do sort of uh, an athletic event or, or perform you know a sporting event in any, any case. But uh, mm-hmm. most of the time we're thinking about alcohol consumption after exercise or, or you know as part of the sort of recovery time frame. And mm-hmm. for me, you know, it's important to think about well, how does alcohol have an impact on things like recovery? on our ability to refuel and rehydrate and recover. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the first thing to recognise when alcohol is consumed and its effects is that it can be different for individuals. Every person could have a different sort of, I guess, magnitude of effect. Uh, mm-hmm. And it really depends on lots and lots of factors. So things like sex, age, whether you have other medical conditions, whether you're Mm -hmm. using other medications, uh, genetics plays a a large part, Uh, but even things like body size and body weight, body composition can have an impact over maybe the magnitude of effects that might be experienced. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so give us a couple of examples. You talked about the recovery of muscle glycogen and, and like a refueling sort of perspective, what do we know about alcohol and recovery of fuel stores? Yeah, it's a good question, Liz. And to be honest, like most of the work that's been done around alcohol and its effects, as I said before, is sort of based around epidemiological observational research. So we know lots about that stuff, what it, what it does to the general person and, and their mm. health. From a athletic or sporting context, the sort of research and literature in that space is relatively uh, limited. And most of the research, to be honest, has been done under circumstances where large doses of alcohol have been provided. But Mm. um, what we have, and and this is based on, again, my reading of the topic, but what what we do see is very little research that's been done in things like refueling, so muscle glycogen resynthesis, and what mm-hmm. what impact alcohol has. I'm only aware of one study that has been done in that area, and that was one of Louise's studies back in 2000, early 2000s, I think it was. Yeah, it was actually started in 1994, but might have been published in 2000, but the studies were yeah. actually done 94, 95, yeah. Yeah, well, and and so, yeah, that's that's quite a while ago. And things things mm. have changed in terms of, you know, alcohol provisions and whatnot, but it was a really interesting study, and it's probably the reason why no other studies have been done since, because they what, what they found was uh, they, they looked at muscle glycogen resynthesis rates after exercise and and what they had was a very small number of well-trained cyclists who they gave 1.5 grams per kilogram of alcohol. That's about, if you put it into sort of context around number of drinks, Mm -hmm. we in Australia tend to use 10 grams as a as a standard drink of, of alcohol that can vary across other parts of the world but in Australia it's 10 grams of ethanol is one standard drink mm-hmm. and so you know for their 
athletes, that was about 12 standard drinks that they were giving. Mm. Um, yeah. 10 to 12 standard drinks, so quite a lot of alcohol. Mm. What they found, though, was that alcohol, when they when the athletes were consuming alcohol and it displaced carbohydrates, so they tried to energy match it. Mm-hmm. From memory, they provided alcohol with carbohydrate and alcohol with carbohydrate, but it was energy matched. To... Yeah, it was energy matched to a non-alcohol containing diet. Non-alcohol containing diet. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And so they, it was either energy matched or not energy matched. Uh, mm-hmm. And from memory, it was that there was no direct effect of alcohol on muscle glycogen resynthesis, but it was there was an indirect effect where when athletes were drinking and they weren't taking in as much carbohydrate, then mm-hmm. the muscle glycogen resynthesis rates were reduced. Yeah, which is logical because you you would think that, you know, well, we know that if there's not as much carbohydrate around, then you don't get as much glycogen replenishment. Yeah. Absolutely. But when it was, when you had more carbohydrate coming in with the alcohol, so when it wasn't energy matched, then it didn't, they didn't actually see an effect. And so uh, it was far less clear as to whether alcohol would have an impact, I guess, on muscle glycogen resynthesis in a free living environment where someone might be consuming, you know, as much carbohydrate as they like. Yeah. And so what about from a hydration perspective? Do we have more data from the rehydration side of things or is that equally as sort of scarce? Yeah, there's a there's a little bit of data in and around some of the hydration work and, and I guess from a rehydration perspective, one of my colleagues, Ben Desborough, he's, he's done a little bit of work in and around using beer as a rehydration agent after exercise. Mm-hmm. And there's been some other, other work that's been done as well in and around alcohol consumption by Ron Morn and some of the groups over in the UK, where they've looked at what impact alcohol has in terms of ability to rehydrate after exercise. And essentially, it depends on a number of factors. The first one being if somebody is dehydrated and they're consuming alcohol, but the percentage of alcohol, so the, the actual alcohol by volume percentage is quite low, if it's a light alcoholic beverage, for example, mm-hmm. then we are equally able to rehydrate under that provision of a yep. beverage, but if, you know, compared to other other beverages like water, for example, but mm-hmm. as soon as the alcohol by volume percentage increases too much, then it can have a diuretic effect and it inhibits our ability to rehydrate effectively. And so okay. we can lose, I guess, our, our ability to sort of optimise rehydration post-exercise if we drink too much and if the alcoholic by volume percentage is too high. Right. And what about, you know, looking at recovery, what about if someone's injured, if an athlete's injured? What, what's the impact that alcohol has potentially on injury or immune function? Do you know anything from that side of things? Not so much from an injury perspective, but certainly when it comes to immune function, obviously alcohol can also have an impact on things like our gut microbiome. And, and there are relationships between our gut bacteria and the good bacteria Um, that we have Mm -hmm. in our gut and its impact on things like immune function. So if we're Mm. drinking and we're drinking heavily or or drinking too much, 
that could potentially impact on our sort of bacteria in our gut and Mm -hmm. reducing the number of sort of gram positive or good bacteria, which could ultimately have an impact on our immune function. So could be at greater risk of illness or getting things like colds and flus because our immune function is compromised. Mm. Okay, cool. And what about the calories? You know, a lot of people, you know, you, you mentioned light beer before. A lot of there's a lot of low carb options at the moment. Is that something that we should be, you know, worrying about or is that something that's not a major issue? Um, no, I think it's something to be conscious of. So obviously alcohol is quite energy dense. When we think about it in you know in the context of sort of other macronutrients like carbohydrate and protein. So carbohydrate and protein give us about 17 kilojoules per gram. I'm going to convert to calories as well. So that's a that's about four four calories per gram? About four calories, yeah, per gram. Yep. Yep. Whereas alcohol's 29 kilojoules or about seven calories uh, mm. per gram. And so you're getting quite a significant sort of increase in, in energy intake with every sort of gram of, of alcohol that you're consuming. Now, I mentioned before that, you know, from a standard drink perspective, in Australia at least, we indicate that a standard drink contains 10 grams of ethanol or alcohol. Mm -hmm. Uh, In other parts of the world, it's slightly different. So in the UK, they use eight grams Mm -hmm. as a standard drink. They call it a unit. And in the US, they use 14 grams as a standard Mm. drink. So there's some variation there. But nonetheless, per gram, ethanol provides 29 kilojoules. And so in a standard drink, it could be anywhere from, you know, 290 kilojoules up to, you know, 350 kilojoules in in a single standard drink. Mm. And if you're consuming several of those, the amount of energy that you bring in just from the ethanol alone can be quite substantial. Mm. And then you might add on top of that, you know, often beverages, uh, alcoholic beverages contain other ingredients that might be mixed with sweeteners and you know mixer drinks that contain other components mm-hmm. and that could bring in energy as well so in a drink you can get quite a significant amount of energy and if you have multiple of those that can bring in quite a lot and mm-hmm. i guess the, the, the issue is whether then that also displaces other nutrients if you're not mm-hmm. consuming other products and particularly in a recovery stent sense if you're trying to recover post-exercise and you're, you're drinking alcohol and then you forget to eat food, mm-hmm. you know, then you may miss out on those other nutrients that are important and you're basically just getting your energy from the alcohol. Mm, okay. And if, you know, I guess a lot of people would think that they put on a lot of body fat from the alcohol. Is the alcohol stored in the body, like what's that mechanism like? What, how does our body use the alcohol, and and why do we tend to put on body fat if we're consuming a lot of alcohol? Yeah, it's a really great question. So when we consume alcohol, because it's because it is a toxin, because ethanol is a, a toxin, we we want to try and remove that, and so we metabolize it relatively quickly. We, we can metabolize alcohol in the stomach and, and in the liver mostly, but we have a small amount of sort of enzyme activity that occurs in the stomach. We start mm-hmm. to break it down quite quickly and then we, we try and remove the, the ethanol so it gets converted into a product called acetaldehyde, which then goes on to produce another product uh, called acetate. We remove that from the body. But from that 
sort of perspective, when we're trying to get rid of alcohol, any other energy that might be coming in, our body's going to favour trying to metabolise and remove alcohol. So other components of, of energy that come in are likely then to be stored. And so mm-hmm. the, the most efficient way of storing energy is as fat. And uh, <laughs> hence, mm-hmm. hence why people, uh, when they consume lots of alcohol and they often choose poor foods as well that they might consume at the same time, but they tend to then, their body's favouring metabolising alcohol to get rid of it. Other energy then gets stored. Mm -hmm. Okay. And do we have much, you know, data, do you think, about how much alcohol athletes do drink? And and specifically, you know, we're we're talking para-athletes in this podcast. Anything that you've seen that really talks about alcohol intake in para-athletes? I, I'm not familiar with anything, Liz, about consumption patterns. I certainly know that you know from the sort of broader literature around alcohol intakes that, uh, particularly in younger individuals, we see you know, much higher intakes with younger younger people than we do in older individuals. Whether that differs between para athletes and able bodied athletes, I'm not sure. Yeah, you you would be probably far better suited to to, to <laughs> insight into that behaviour. Yeah, oh, it's it's interesting because it's you know I find it fascinating that we don't really report it. Sometimes in food diary like studies that report dietary intake of athletes, there may be a mention of average alcohol consumption, but whether that's a, a true indication, you know, the inevitably people who are undertaking food diaries will probably avoid writing something down that they think is going to be judged as a bad decision. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah it's, it's something that I think is really notoriously hard to estimate or to even accurately report on because I think a lot of people just don't self-report their alcohol intake very accurately. I totally agree, and and it's, you know, especially if there's large volumes of alcohol being consumed, obviously the effects that it has in terms of our cognitive ability, and and you know, people are much less likely to remember how much they drink when they're impaired. Mm. So you know, if you're only having one or two drinks, you might be able to remember that. Whether you go on to actually report that, as you said, I think there's a that stigma around. Well, if you know it's alcohol, people think you know. Or if I write this into my diary, I might get judged a certain way. So, um, if, you know, practitioners, um, health professionals, dietitians are looking at diaries and they see alcohol there. It, it often, you know, that it will be something of a topic they want to discuss. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess one of the questions that I have is whether you believe there's any reason why para-athletes may be at a higher risk of side effects from alcohol consumption. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to frame it a little bit for you. If you look at the spectrum of para-athletes, we have athletes with spinal cord injuries, we have athletes who are amputees and therefore less limb volume, short stature, uh, for various reasons, there could be a range of para-athletes that are a lot lighter in body weight than an able-bodied athlete. And so this kind of goes back to what you were saying, that there's a lot of variability in the effects that alcohol has on an individual and that perhaps body size is one of those factors. Do you think that having a smaller body size as a result of whatever the impairment may be, could exacerbate the response 
from the same dose of ethanol on that individual? Yeah, and that's a really great question and and I think a really great point in that context um, that you've described. Yes, I do think it can have an impact. You know, we see the same thing if we look at differences between sexes, so males, females, and we often see higher responses to alcohol and greater effects in females than males because of Mm. body size and total body water. So the way that alcohol is distributed throughout the body is through, it's basically diluted within the body water once it's absorbed and then can Mm. travel throughout the body quite rapidly to all of the uh, highly vascularized tissues, so like the brain, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. And so if you've got less body volume and therefore less total body water, you have less dilution effect of alcohol. So Mm. the impact or the effect that that it may have could be exacerbated under under that circumstance. Interestingly, we did some research as part of one of my first studies in my PhD, looking at the interaction between dehydration and alcohol and um, Mm. pharmacokinetics of alcohol. So what happened to the blood alcohol, breath alcohol responses Mm -hmm. when we were dehydrated compared to not being dehydrated? And so this sort of shifts around or, or is in line with things like total body water. Mm. Now, we dehydrated people to about two and a half percent of their body weight. So they lost about sort of two liters in sweat by the exercise. We didn't actually see any differences in pharmacokinetic behavior or responses to alcohol, but we're we're only talking about two and a half percent. So in somebody that may have um, substantially lower body volume of water because of whatever reason, it could potentially have more of an effect because you've got less dilution effect. Mm, Okay. And I guess another question is recently there seems to be a lot of alcohol-free beers and wines. You know, they're readily available in supermarkets here in Australia and I believe in in other countries and are promoted fairly heavily. Are these drinks truly alcohol-free and are they safe or do you think that they have a role to play as a beverage? Yeah, it's a, it's another good question, and and they have become far more commonplace. We've seen a major increase in sales and availability of low and no alcohol products. Often, because of the way that the sort of food standards legislation works, and they consider low alcohol beverages to be anything less than one point one five percent alcohol by volume, mm-hmm. and then anything that's sort of no alcohol should have zero, but often there may be small traces in there still. Mm -hmm. So they're not technically always zero, but uh, within the sort of, you know, food regulations framework, they get considered as as no or low alcohol. Mm -hmm. Do they have a role to play? Um, I think so, but I I think it depends on the context. Some people might see these like, you know, as a gateway to to alcohol consumption, Um, Mm. but I think that, that you know that really depends on on what we're looking at when when they're being sold in supermarkets. You know, it could be somewhat problematic if people aren't normally consuming alcohol and they you know are buying these no alcohol products. That might be sort of that. That's why that gateway sort of hypothesis comes out. Mm. But in terms of other context where someone is looking for you know options to consume that are not alcoholic, but they're in an environment that might be a social context where other people are drinking and they want to 
you know, want to have a beverage that is within keeping of what everyone else is sort of having, but not have the alcohol component to it, then I think they play a really, or give a great opportunity for people to consume something. So for example, mm. you know, no alcohol beers, they look like other beers that contain alcohol. Yep. And if, if it's in a, a glass, no one's going to know whether that's got alcohol or not in it. And um, mm. so, yeah, if, if someone wants to be part of a social environment and they're a bit sort of concerned about not fitting in, well, these do offer an opportunity for someone to have a beverage, be part of that social group, yet not have to consume alcohol and not get any sort of, I guess, stigma associated with that when they're not seem to be fitting in, for example, yeah. if they're in that environment. Yeah, because that social pressure to to consume alcohol is is a real concern, isn't it? It is, yeah. And you know, in that sporting context as well that we've been talking about, you know, if if people are in a team sport, for example, you know, there's there's often a lot of a lot more pressure under that sort of environment, your teammates to be consuming and, and, and behaving like everybody else does. Mm. I mean, the one thing I would say is that, you know, it should be really up to an individual and, and they shouldn't feel pressured to consume alcohol mm. if they don't want to consume it. In fact, you know, there's lots of ways to, to be part of a social group, have a good time and not necessarily need to consume alcohol to be in that environment. Yep, yep. And do you think there is, like, I know there's recommendations put out by public health authorities in terms of, a, of what they consider to be a safe level of alcohol intake. I believe that recently changed in Australia. So so what does that look like and, and do you believe that that's a truly safe or can you really say that, that you can have a safe level of alcohol intake? <laughs> yeah, great question. It has changed <laughs> recently. So the guidelines in Australia shifted to... We have different guidelines based on the, the relative risk, I guess, from a lifetime perspective versus the, the risk associated with a single drinking occasion. Mm-hmm. And so the advice that's given by the government indicates that we should try and reduce our alcohol intake to, to no more than 10 standard drinks a week and no more than four standard drinks on a single drinking occasion. And mm-hmm. so that's what they say will help reduce the risk of lifetime chronic disease risk, but also reduce the risk of things like acute impairment effects. Mm-hmm. Now, is is there a safe level? That's arguable. <laughs> <laughs> I think, to be honest, because alcohol can affect individuals very differently, I would question whether there is any safe level of alcohol consumption. And in fact, a lot of the public health research that is done, they often indicate that that there is a small positive effect with low amounts of alcohol, but there's a lot of flaws in some of that research in that it depends on what you consider to be low and no alcohol consumption across, across individuals. Are they truly abstaining and have not consumed alcohol and that's your control group? Or do mm. they include even small amounts of alcohol in when, they, when they're doing comparisons against larger doses of alcohol? And so to me, if I was giving personal advice, I would always indicate that we, we don't need alcohol you know, as part of our dietary intake. Mm-hmm. Does it play a role in terms of other things like you know, relaxation and, and part of that social context? Yes, of course it does. But how much do we need to consume to 
uh, I guess, enjoy and, and, and be relaxed in that environment? Probably mm. not much. And so my advice is always, if you don't need to consume it, don't. But uh, is there a safe amount? I would probably say it's difficult to say and, and I would always opt for no <laughs> as the mm. first option. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I see a lot of athletes when they're coming up to a big event, they go, right, uh, now I'm alcohol-free for the for the next three months. Like if it's, if it's a Paralympic Games or an Olympic yeah. Games, you know, I'm, I, now we're, as a team we've decided that we're going to be alcohol-free for this period of time. Is, yeah. do, you, do you think that's necessary or can the occasional social drink with a meal, obviously with a well, you know, a, a nourishing meal, like a glass of wine with the family or something like that or a, a glass of champagne on a, on a special occasion, is that still something that you think could be, do you think they have to go or it's an all or none effect? Um, I think it really depends on the on the context um, a little bit. So you know, coming back to your uh, what you were just sort of saying there around that, you know, they might might stop three months in advance of uh, you know competition. Is that necessary? Well, I think it depends on that. What sort of training is occurring in between that point where they're stopping and and the event? Mm. I would always say to someone, if you're doing training, you need to be purposeful in that training and you don't want to compromise your ability to train it by not feeling well. So you know, mm. reducing your alcohol consumption leading into tra- into a training session is obviously important. Now, if it it might be that you're having a glass of wine with, with a, a, a good meal at dinner time and you don't have anything on the next day, it might be a day off, a recovery day, then you know, you're probably not going to be compromised under that circumstance. But if mm. you've got a training session happening the next day that's a, a very hard training session that you're trying to get sort of adaptation and gains occurring, you know, leading into sort of competition down the line, then yeah, you want to be somewhat considerate of well, how much you drink. Will one sort of drink have an effect? Probably not. But I think you've got to be very conscious then of not make, of making sure that you don't go beyond, you know, a small amount of alcohol you're not yeah, consuming yeah. large doses of alcohol which potentially could compromise training that next day so it's really about being purposeful and being very conscious of how much you're consuming and if you're just having a single drink it's unlikely to have a major impact but maybe as you're getting closer and closer towards sort of peak competitive event you know you want to be somewhat a bit more restrictive mm. Do we have any, like, I, I guess this just one popped into my mind, you know, if, if you know, if you think about the team sport athlete who, who has a big game on the weekend and they might have a big night out, how many days do you think it, it takes for them to truly recover and be able to train if we're looking at purposeful training and, and really effective training? I think yeah. some athletes think that, you know, oh, I've got the day off tomorrow, so if I have a big night out, that's fine. I'll be ready to train again on, on you know, Monday, the following day. Do you think that's the case or do you think that, that that impact is actually much more longer lasting? Well, I think it can be much more longer lasting. I think for some people they may be able to recover much faster and this comes back to that sort of individualisation around mm-hmm. you know, alcohol and its effects. For some people they they can tolerate alcohol far better than others for you know, a variety of reasons but they can also metabolise alcohol a little bit faster as well so they get, get rid of it from the body you know, quicker than others. So for some people, they may be able to recover a little bit faster and, and be able to train, you know, within 24, 48 hours. 
but that then also depends on how much alcohol they're consuming. Mm. And, but for other people, it might be that, you know, it takes them two or three days to recover, particularly if they've mm. had a very large amount of alcohol and with that comes some, you know, some major sort of effects like hangover, which can sometimes mm. last for some people a number of days. And mm. so if, you, if you're not feeling well, even if, you know, you might not have the hangover, but there might be other sort of general feelings of malaise, you know, tiredness because you didn't sleep well, because mm. alcohol can have an impact on things like sleep as well. So, mm. you know, if, if some of those other things are compromised, that could potentially have an impact on your ability to train for several days. Yep. Okay. Perfect. So, Chris, if you had an athlete and you were, re- you know, talking to them about alcohol, what is your recommendation for responsible and safe alcohol consumption for an, a- for an individual athlete? Yeah, so if I was talking to an athlete, I would sort of advise them to be purposeful. Obviously, you know, we live in the, the real world and uh, we realise that people will consume alcohol and, and that goes for, you know, for athletes and, and non-athletes alike. But I would, I would advise them to be purposeful. If they are, are thinking about consuming alcohol, that they, they do so with purpose but avoid consuming large doses of alcohol and think about what they can do to minimise the effects of that alcohol. So obviously reducing the amount that they consume is one thing, but they also have to get lots of other things right. You know, space out your drinking with non-alcoholic beverages in between, drink slowly, don't drink on an empty stomach, so eat prior to drinking. Mm-hmm. And think about doing all of the other things right from a recovery perspective, you know, post-exercise. So if you're going out uh, drinking after doing exercise, make sure that you're well hydrated. Make sure that you're, you know, you've replenished your fuel sources and mm-hmm. you've done everything else right before you consume alcohol. Uh, and then try and limit how much you consume. Mm, great. It's lovely to know that your recommendations are actually very similar to, to mine. <laughs> well, I think yeah, some people would say, oh, don't drink at all and don't ever drink, which, you know, I think it's a nice sort of um, utopia to live in, but that's not the way people live. And we're, we're on the no. for a very small period of time. And, and for some people, you know, they, they'll have events that come up. It might be a 21st birthday party or a wedding that they're going to attend and they're, and they're going to probably consume alcohol. We just that's, we have to be realistic that, that that's going to be the case. But if we can do all the other things right mm. and, and limit the likely impact that alcohol will have, then, you know, we have to recognise that having some alcohol in our dietary intake is, is going to be okay. Yeah. And I guess, you know, just being aware of what is a standard drink and then how much does that drink that I'm having actually have in it? You know, so as you said, in Australia, that 10 grams of ethanol is is what's considered a standard drink. But the average bottle of beer or cider (laughs) that you'd buy actually can often have one and a half standard drinks in it, which is very clearly labelled, but I don't think a lot of people realise that. Or the amount of wine, like a standard drink of wine, is actually a very small glass. And so, you know, wine glasses these days are so big that you could effectively get almost half a bottle in a glass. And so... And and, and 
some people do that, Liz, and, and that's like, yeah, you get yeah. those very large glasses and, and what looks like a very small amount of alcohol can sometimes be three standard drinks. Yeah. And, and so you're absolutely right. I think, uh, you know, that's part of the challenge, I guess, particularly where we're, we might be drinking in an environment where, you, you know, it's harder to keep track of how much you've consumed um, because it's poured mm. into sort of different types of vessels, uh, yep. different types of glasses and whatnot. But I think it is just being aware of, and, and as soon as you start noticing, you know, if you're drinking and you don't know exactly how much you've consumed, once you start noticing those effects, it's time to stop. Yeah. Uh, any of those negative effects, it's time to stop drinking. That can often be a challenge if, if you're inebriated. But for others, yeah, it's being aware of how many standard drinks are in what they're consuming. And if you're drinking out of a can or, or you know, you're buying things from a bottle shop or drinking from a, a wine out of a wine bottle, they're very clearly labelled, as you said. So being nutrition literate and understanding mm. how many standard drinks are in what, you're, what you've got in front of you is, is important. And that can help guide you as to, okay, how much of this is truly, you know, how much alcohol is truly in this and how many standard drinks is this that, I'm, that I've got in front of me. And that might help yep. to sort of guide how much you actually consume. Yeah, yeah. I guess the worst case scenario is a you know a group dinner where there's bottles of wine open and there's topping up happening, but you actually can never track how much. Like if your glass is in the middle of the table, you don't know when someone's topped it up necessarily because you might be distracted. And I think you know there's strategies that might need to be employed in terms of holding your glass closer to you so that you can actually control the amount it gets topped up. For example, so you know, I think that. Yeah, they're they're kind of the scenarios where it can become a little. Uh, what's the term I'm trying to think of? Um, it could be a bit out of your control. Yeah, challenging. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be definitely challenging. I think you know. I go back to my point before. You know, we should. Everyone has the right to say that they don't want to drink alcohol, and they shouldn't mm. feel pressured by by that. In fact, that you know, they if they don't want to drink, they say no and be purposeful and and you know enforce that. Mm. Yeah, we've seen far more acceptability these days with abstinence from alcohol, and mm. and, and that's great. And, you know, there's a, yeah. there's far more in the likes of things like the Dry July and these sorts of campaigns that are running and people mm. are embracing them a bit more, which is great to see. Yep. You don't always have to drink alcohol to have fun. Yep. It may be a part of yep, an, a, an event or an environment that you're in, but you can also say no and, and feel okay about that and not get pressured mm. into consuming any more than you want to do. Yep. Good messages. Okay, Chris, well, thank you so much for your knowledge and, and your expertise and, and also just your realism in, in terms of you know, the, the real practicalities of that. Before you go, we have one last question, though. What's your favourite? And, and, and you, I might need to rephrase this because I, I it's normally what's your favourite food, but maybe I could say what's your favourite food and or beverage? <laughs> it has to be on the beverage side. Um, <laughs> In fact, coffee is my weakness. It's my kryptonite. Oh. I absolutely am addicted to coffee. And I just like the taste of coffee. And not so much, I mean, the caffeine's a great component to it because it stimulates you, but I really love the taste of coffee. I'll drink it in any form. So it could be from the coffee shop, it could be instant coffee, it could be coffee milk. I just like mm -hmm. coffee for some reason. <laughs> 
I love that it's you, you. You're not a coffee snob because it's it doesn't you know instant coffee. It could be any form of coffee. So yeah, I like that. Or if it tastes like coffee. <laughs> oh please no. <laughs> I love coffee and it is my weakness. I have far too much of it and, yeah, I've got a problem. <laughs> I've got to say that I've been told that my sometimes my coffee looks like dirty bath water because I like my coffee fairly weak. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It's been wonderful having you on, on the podcast and, and picking your brain and we'll look forward to maybe catching up another time or, or find another topic that you, you can be equally passionate about. Absolutely. Uh, my pleasure, Liz, and thank you for having me on. It's great. Chris's advice about being purposeful if you're consuming alcohol can actually run the line of anything to do with sport and being at the elite level. It's about understanding the risk and the potential benefit and the purpose behind anything that you do and what's going to optimise your ability to train consistently and repeatedly. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any suggestions, please leave them on our website. And I hope you join us next time when we talk to Steve Empt, who is a wheelchair curler.